0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam
0: Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. We've been put in jail. We've been shot at. We've had dynamite thrown at us. And then you don't want us to have nothing. Well, I tell you, Mr. Horn, I'm going to be standing right there on that picket line looking at you just as long as it takes. That's from Barbara Koppel's Oscar-winning documentary, Harlan County, USA, which captures the violence surrounding the 1973 Brookside Miner Strike and the stories of the miners and their families. Truly one of my favorite documentaries, Harlan County is next up in our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series. Also this week, a review of Undina, the latest from one of the most distinctive directors working today, Germany's Christian Petzold. You promised me Undina
1: was about mermaids, Josh. (laughs) You need a tail, don't you?
0: If there's no fish tail, <laughs> that's right. it's
1: not a mermaid to you. <laughs> that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, you did it. You finally caught up with one of, I think, the greatest documentaries ever made. I am so eager to hear what you think of Harlan County, USA, which of course means I am also Terrified to find out what you think about Harlan County, USA. You don't really think I'm going to disappoint you on this one, do you, Adam? I feel like the odds are in my favor here. Okay, good. Our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever review of Harlan County will come later in the show. But first,
0: Siren, Water Nymph, Mermaid? Just call her Undina.
1: Das hat mich glücklich gemacht. So glücklich, wie ich noch nie glücklich war. And we will call her Undina. This is a movie and a character we'd previously referred to on the show as Undine. But then you watch the movie, Josh, and I'm pretty sure every character calls her Undina. Yeah. So we're sticking with that. That's how I heard it. Okay. For the purposes of this review, it's Undina until someone writes in to correct us. And we talked about this film recently on the show as part of our summer movie preview, our unusual film-spotting summer movie preview, our top five questions about the summer season. And your number five was, is Undine really about a mermaid? Now, I love it when you do the work for me, and now I don't really have to craft any kind of setup. I can just pose that question back at you. I think you'd have to say, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is about a mermaid. Is it really about a mermaid? We will have to decide and discuss. Back when Christian Petzold's previous film, Transit, came out around 2018, Hillary Weston interviewed Christian Petzold for CriterionCollection.com, and she said this. His films, including an acclaimed trilogy he refers to as Love in the Time of Oppressive Systems, Barbara, Phoenix, and Transit, show his deep knowledge of cinema history and eclectic taste, and often pay subtle homage to the movies he loves, including the masterpieces of Alfred Hitchcock, the romantic melodramas of Douglas Sirk, and low-budget mind-benders like... Edgar G. Ulmer's Detour, shout out '40s Mm. Film Noir Marathon, and Herc Harvey's Carnival of Souls. But his use of influence goes far beyond mere illusion. It's the way he strips genre down to essential elements of rhythm and atmosphere that makes his work so distinctive. And I think Weston's insights there specifically about how Petzold uses genre and rhythm and atmosphere is certainly on display in Undina, which is in terms of genre, I suppose, Josh, I guess I would describe as mythological fairy tale. I'm going to go back to those three films that Weston mentioned, though. Barbara, which is the one of those three that neither of us have seen, is about a Nice German doctor who is banished from Berlin, the city where Undina takes place, after she tries to escape West Germany. That's in the 1980s. Phoenix, the film that followed, Also takes place in Berlin. That's set back in 1945 and is about a singer who survives the concentration camps, has plastic surgery, and comes back to see if her husband really could have betrayed her to the Nazis. And then there's Transit, which doesn't take place in Berlin and really seems to take place mostly out of time, but is about a character played by Franz Rogowski – who we also find in Undina, who is trying to flee Nazi-occupied France. I bring up those three titles and Weston's article, Josh, because I wonder whether after seeing Undina, a movie that truly is tied to this mythological figure, a water nymph who, as I understand it, falls in love with a man and in doing so becomes human, but then once he betrays her, Once he's unfaithful to her, then she's doomed to die. And that's not necessarily exactly the version of it we get here in this movie, but I wonder if we can actually extend the trilogy. Whether Petzold thinks of the four films as truly connected or not, should we call it a quadrilogy? It's perhaps not a love story that takes place within an oppressive system the way the three prior films clearly do, but... Is there enough connective tissue that does bind those films together? And if so, is that connective tissue something you found special about Petzold's latest?
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of connective tissue here. And I should say, too, in kind of doing some general research on the myth, I saw versions where it said she this creature is required to kill the man who dumped her or who betrayed her. And there's a little Mm -hmm. wrinkle there. So yeah, a lot of variations (laughs) over the centuries, obviously on this, Uh, but that comes into play in Undina, And I think the through line that I see is um, you're right. It plays with myth. It plays with genre, but the other element here is German history. And that's a direct connection to at least transit and Phoenix. Uh, Specifically, the history of Berlin. We have here Undina, the character played by Paula Beer. She is a historian, she's a lecturer, and she specializes in the post Cold War reunification of the city and there are lengthy scenes where we hear her lectures or her co-workers' mm-hmm. lectures. And so you realize, you know, this isn't just background or atmosphere that Petzold is providing us. He is deeply interested in the details of these lectures. We get them on a number of occasions. And so then you start to try to tie that together with what else is going on in this movie. I think, and you can probably say this of the other Petzold films of his I've seen, there isn't one interpretation of the movie that is correct. I think he likes to make films and hand them over to the audience. He may have a very distinct idea of what he thinks they're about, um, but he's not holding us hostage to that. That's what I like about all of his films so far. And I think this is the same situation here. The one thing, without spoiling anything, that I do think ties all these things together, for me at least, is that this is a movie that considers what it means to move on. Mm -hmm. What it means to reconcile with the past um, while creating a new future. And so that can be for a city. It can be for an individual person. It can be for a mythological creature uh, who somehow finds herself or a variation of such creature that finds herself in a modern city um, in in a deeply... Intimate interpersonal relationship because this registered for me very much as a romance. And yep. much more so, I think I said when I when I asked that question about Andina in our uh preview, something about Rogowski, Franz Rogowski, and Paula Beer being so good in transit and reteaming here. And then I went back and looked at what um I wrote about transit and I do think they were good, but I One of the things that held me back in that movie is I never fully emotionally connected with their characters. It was more the concept that Petzold had constructed that I was fascinated Mm -hmm. by and I thought was really intriguing. Here, I would almost say that the performances and the characters transcend the concept. I I found this to be a really compelling romance apart from all these other elements going on. But I'll just leave that there because, you know... To, to kind of get back to your your main question here is what is this movie and how does it relate to his earlier films i absolutely see it completely mm-hmm. in line it's a little bit you know it's a little bit of a lower gear Petzold film compared to transit and um phoenix which were either a direct period piece or a pseudo period piece larger scale this is a little quieter and intimate um, but i think it's absolutely in line with those films
1: yeah. Larger scale, larger stakes, even as mysterious and kind of enigmatic transit is. I think you, you know, with at least those two prior films that we have seen and talked about Phoenix and transit, they're movies where, you know, or have a sense of what they're building to, or maybe what the resolve could potentially be And here. I'm not sure that it's as clear or it's maybe a little bit more elusive. I remember, writing about transit in my notes at the time and talking about it on the show, that it's a movie that definitely felt like a bit of a riddle. And maybe it doesn't even pay off in terms of that riddle. But the concept, to your point, is is so rich and really so kind of mesmerizing that I was with it the entire time. And I'm not sure the concept here is quite as arresting, but you're absolutely right that there's an easier in with these characters. And it is that that romance and there's a key scene. I'm going to talk about it here kind of for two reasons. There's a key scene in the movie where it's as realistic as anything else we see in this film in terms of everyday life. And it's two lovers. It's these two central characters and we've seen them in the first blushes of their romance. And you know, it's that thing, Josh, where She comes to visit him, and he's waiting for her to get off the train at the station, and they can't keep their hands off each other. And and they're just staring deeply into each other's eyes. And then this moment comes where they're walking along, I think, a bridge. And they're almost oblivious, almost oblivious to the world around them and all the characters that are moving by them. And she's nestled into his arm, and it's, as I said, so kind of quotidian and mundane. And at the same time, the depth of the feelings they seem to be exhibiting for each other is as fairy tale-esque as anything we see in most movies that are more clearly fantasy. And what I mean is you're watching it going, Oh, that's going to end because inevitably it will, there will, there will come a point where they will simply have spent enough time with each other. (laughs) They will become accustomed to each other and even more comfortable with each other in a way that has its own rewards, its own intimate kind of rewards, but also maybe actually does distance them a little bit, at least compared to where they are in this moment. And that scene also is a really crucial one in terms of the plot of this film, but I also think it's really telling where that scene comes in the movie. And I only know this because I was so mesmerized by an exchange they had that when the movie was over, I was able to go back. This is the one advantage to watching a screener versus seeing this in the theater, right? Is that I was able to go back and watch that scene again. And I realized where these scenes came in the film, one right after the other. And it's Undina, doing her job. She's preparing for her work where she has to give a lecture on something. I think that she doesn't feel like she's really a specialist in, and she's really practicing. And he really wants to listen to her. He wants to hear her prepare. He wants to hear her presentation. And she concludes it with some really mesmerizing, tantalizing lines. She's talking about the Humboldt forum, which is a museum of non-European art that's right in the center of Berlin. And the gist of it, Josh, if you recall, is that she's talking about how there was one group that really wanted to kind of restore this centerpiece to what it was back in like the 18th century when there was some ruler living there. And there's some discrepancy about that, some controversy about it. And then the people kind of come around and they decide to build a replica of it. And in building a replica of it, Everyone kind of decides they fall in love with it. And she starts talking about what modern architectural theory tells us about the importance of form and function. And so now you've got this 21st century museum that's housing all of these artifacts from the past, but is actually in the mold of the structure that it would have been back in a much earlier time. And she says the deceptive part lies in the hypothesis that this makes no real difference which is the same as claiming that progress is impossible. And that's the line. That's the line where you kind of have that bolt of lightning moment as you're trying to unpack this film, at least I did, and you're thinking about it in terms of these other Petzold films. And I think it does, Josh. I saw it similarly as you. I think it gets right back to that notion of moving on. Another term for moving on, of course, is, is progress. And I think it's, it's so central to Petzold's work, this notion of whether a city, whether a country whether individuals, a couple, can move on. Can you truly progress as any of those things once you have been traumatized, once you have been haunted? And I'm not sure that the other films we've talked about come out on the positive end of that, and I'll say that maybe this film, in its own unique way, does.
0: Yeah, no, I, I didn't think about that actually. which which one of these three that we've seen would you describe as having a quote unquote happier ending that that's that is interesting. You might be right about Andina on that front. And what I like about that segment, the discussion of the museum that has been reconstructed. It's a reconstruction, is that it's also sort of a form of time travel, what she's describing there. And we have I don't want to say we have time travel in this movie, but we have maybe time slippage in a few. Mm-hmm instances, which is a piece of the puzzle I have yet to put together, to be honest with you, but I do like that it kind of pops up here and there. But yeah, I want to go back to the bridge scene you mentioned, because this is the one I'm assuming where as she's kind of nuzzling into into Kristoff, the Ragowski character, um, she looks back after they pass another couple, right? Is mm-hmm. that the same? Right. And so- yeah so she, and i don't exactly want to spoil i think why she looks back um and what she sees but i was thinking about this today adam and is it possible that like a single shot can completely define and sum up a movie and be representative of that movie absolutely um and i think that's what we have here with the, with that shot so if you've seen any of the press material or the publicity photos it's one of the three or four that they're putting out for this film so you can maybe even picture it if you haven't seen Andina yet, but she looks back, is kind of peering over his shoulder. She's still nuzzled in and it's just this glance mm-hmm. and it, you know, exactly what you're saying. It suddenly everything has shifted um, in, in the narrative of the film, but more importantly, really for our emotional involvement in their relationship, their, their sort of intimate bubble has been burst because she's looked out. And I think this gets to the performances too here because beer to me it's such a great performance because she's she makes us realize very early on in the opening scene where she's with another man, um, won't give away what the topic is there, um, but it's an intensely, an intense conversation. And she's a woman who feels things intensely. We understand mm-hmm. this about her right away from that opening scene. And I think so much of it has to do with her eyes, yeah, which are, they're very still, they're very focused, they're very deep. And I thought of this even before Petzold started to weave in all of these watery visual motifs. There's something aquatic about her eyes. There I is. don't know if they've done it. By design, however they pulled it off. I yes. don't know how they pulled it off because I don't remember thinking of that in transit. As as arresting as she was as a performer mm-hmm. in transit, I don't remember that quality. So whatever's going, whatever's going on here, it's so affecting. And it, it just gives her this... Uh, Adds to that intense flavor of her character. And as for Rogowski, I love, you described it, that scene where he's waiting for her on the train. What does he do? He runs along the train as it's arriving in the station. He's just such an infatuated puppy dog, I think, throughout throughout this movie. And we see, again, how he nuzzles into her neck at Mm -hmm. times. And they are this couple who are so thoroughly engrossed in each other. You... You kind of fear for that moment when the world is going to break in or, or as I said, on the on the bridge where she peeks out and kind of allows it in. So it's it's such a pivotal again, nothing like it's nothing that would end up as like necessarily a scene of the year for the filmmaking bravura or anything like that. But it just does kind of like grab you in its importance, even though it's a very simple moment.
1: Yeah, I don't know that there are any moments in this film that actually would probably grab you on that kind of visceral filmmaking level, but you're absolutely right. And if I wasn't clear enough when I was connecting those two scenes, that question, that central question that I think the lecture she's about to give kind of sets up, this idea of whether or not you can truly progress, you can make progress, whether or not you can go forward, it then Makes perfect sense that that very next scene is the one where she's going to look back to your point, and that's going to be put to the test. It mm-hmm. all happens right within a matter of seconds of each other, and I'm with you on on the performers, and especially Beer. It is about the eyes. It could be something simply too about contacts or makeup, something a little bit artificial that's adding to it. But the reality is. Beer's just a really, really talented, deep-feeling performer based on the work we've seen. And especially in that opening scene and throughout, you're right about the eyes in that with very subtle shifts, very subtle shifts, she can go in a matter of seconds from being someone who is looking at a man as if he means everything in the world to her and Has nothing but deep love and respect for him to then in the next second looking like she might devour him Mm. if she if she had the choice, you know, something something kind of sinister actually is just always kind of peeking beneath the surface of this movie, which is interesting when you consider that it's otherwise a fairly
0: romantic tale. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, that goes back to the intensity, you know, whatever she's going to feel, it, it's going to be with an uh, enormous intensity. And we haven't talked too much about the formal elements here. Uh, and, and I think probably compared to something like transit, maybe, um, uh, or even Phoenix, it, it doesn't jump out at you quite as much. But I do like how Petzold foreshadows this, um, the outside world breaking in on the couple in in a couple of clever ways, including there's a returning we return frequently to Bach's uh, piano concerto in D minor, which mm-hmm. is really lovely. But almost every time we, we get it, we will then have it suddenly sharply interrupted by, I don't know, like a passing car or, or a rushing train, something like that. And I do think the sound design is pretty sophisticated here because yeah. there are a handful of underwater, underwater scenes. We should say, Christoph, his job basically is... Um, to repair like dams. So he's, you know, he's working underwater. This is outside of Berlin. so it's separate from Andina's work. um, and it requires them to be separated because he has to take the train out to this dam to work. So we do get some underwater scenes. I like the audio there where it's kind of muffled, but also there's this throbbing, um I, I'll say it again, intensity to it. So you feel claustrophobic, but also mm-hmm. it opens up sort of a possibility. And I'm still working through. What we see underwater a number of times in this movie. Maybe not a spoiler to say that. Or the first time we go there, Kristoff uh, encounters a giant catfish. Oh, I believe Big Gunther or Old Gunther. Big Gunther. Um, yeah, yes. big, big Gunther, who's a kind of like this mythological catfish in this lake that that he actually encounters. And so there's just those are all sequences that, again. Deeply mysterious, but I think Petzold walks the line between expecting us to find the answer he's left for us or just Mm -hmm. kind of to sit in the mystery and think about it ourselves. I, I like that space that he creates for us so far in all of the movies that we've seen of his. Yeah. And even
1: going back to the line in question or the sequence, I was spending so much time on talking about the Humboldt forum and some of her lectures on Berlin he takes this space and he takes this very sort of academic approach or what could be a very academic approach to these lectures and makes them to use your word he makes them mysterious right he fills them with these very provocative kind of thoughtful lingering questions it's as if even as they're kind of trying to recite information to deliver these lectures to their guests they're also trying to unpack some of these these myths and you pointed out as well that she is someone who specializes in germany and berlin and reunification and as much of a riddle as this movie can be at times you also recognize that the whole story is a series of what missed encounters breakups reunions mm-hmm. it's it's very much tied to the work that she does and that that makes sense once you start to piece together let's say who undina really is that that her her work, her professional life and her work within this city and about this city really does. I think to go back to where we started, it it mirrors Petzold's own as an artist, right? Yeah. In his in his in his desire to want to explore these myths and these really provocative philosophical questions, but he's so tethered always to to the location and the space and the the memories and the history.
0: There. Yeah, the history, right? How many how many different angles, intriguing angles, can you take on for him German history, specifically German history that he wants to wrestle with? So far, in these films that we've seen, each one has taken a really compelling and very different angle towards looking at that
1: history. Andina is currently playing in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. All right.
0: It's time for me to take care of that blind spot. Our 7 from 76 series continues when we come back with Harlan County, USA. Plus, a massacre theater scene so thematically perfect for this episode, it's as if it was written with us in mind. Stay with us. Traveling on down that cold town road. Listen to my rubber tires whine goodbye All
1: right, all right. Everybody sit down, sit down. Yes! It's a story of a block that was disappearing. In a barrio called Washington Heights, the streets
0: were made of music.
1: In the Heights, a clip from the trailer there. It'll be my second experience in a movie theater in quite some time. And one I'm going to say I'm looking forward to just a little bit more, Josh. Josh. Than I was A Quiet Place Part 2 because of the involvement, of course, of Lynn manuel Miranda, my appreciation for the musical that the movie is based on. And so far, from the little bits that I've seen, it seems to be getting some halfway
0: decent reviews. Yeah, that's pretty much what I've seen, too. So raises the bar, raises the expectations, at least. I'm curious, though. It makes me wonder, Adam. So the philosophy you have towards books adapted into movies, which is generally mm-hmm. don't read them. Um, you yeah. don't like that i i usually try to in most cases <laughs> does that apply for you to musicals so i'm not saying you would avoid a musical or a, or a play like a new play um if you knew that there was a movie coming out but if you could do it over as a film critic uh-huh. would you not want to see in the heights on stage which we saw together yeah so That's that you, right. so that you could bring a pure <laughs> point of view to the film great question to the (laughs) to the film experience okay this is all unplanned and
1: i will try to come up with a halfway decent answer and say that really even though yes i do get into some philosophical realms when we talk about that whole book before movie subject the reality is that i'm mostly just really jealous that you still make time to read books okay. and that, that your life is so well-structured and you're so organized and so studious mm. that you that you get that homework done. Mm. I, I, I may disagree with the approach, but I'm also really quite jealous. My cop-out answer is going to be that the truth is that In the Heights musical we saw together feels like it was 20 years ago. Well, this and is I'm true. Not sure. I'm not sure it in any way will have any impact on – what I see on screen in In the Heights, I am ready to see that musical brought to life in a way that will feel surely almost completely fresh and brand new to me. And maybe that to go back to the heart of your question is also a distinction between musicals and books, because, of course, it's not just that it puts another image In your mind or another sense of the material and your your judgment, if you will, is already clouded or you already have these presupposed notions of what it is and how it should unfold. The movie musical probably pretty closely matches the musical in terms of what you what you learn, what you Mm. glean about the characters. And I always see that book world, the the world of the novel is so much expanded from any movie, which is inherently an abridged version of the book. That's where I think it gets wonky. So probably more information than you needed to hear there, Josh, but I'm going with it.
0: Okay. But is that a good thing? Is that a good thing that you expect the film to align with what you saw on stage? I don't know. We're way, we're way off track. We're we're doing a whole show, a whole different show here, but.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, to go back to the other point I made, I certainly don't actually have any true expectations of this movie. I just don't know the source material well enough other than seeing it that one time which you and i did here in chicago and it was quite a good production as i recall in the heights comes to theaters and to hbo max on june 11th we will have a review next week also next week we will close out our seven from 76 best year ever series with a movie we think ties in nicely within the heights it's car wash from director michael schultz he made cooley high which we talked about as part of our black exploitation Marathon, that film from 1975, and also Sam put here in our notes, Josh, that Michael Schultz infamously also made Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Peter Frampton, the Bee Gees, in that narrative inspired by... The Beatles album. Wow,
0: that's a filmography, huh? I, I remember being surprised when I made the Cooley High Car Wash connection. Not not like hugely surprised. And obviously this is in, the, is in the musical realm too. But yeah, that's an interesting pack of movies to put together there.
1: It is, though. I realize as we bring it up, I've never seen the Sgt. Peppers movie. Have you, Josh? No, no, I have not either. So we'll have to get to that at okay. some point. We will. Also next week, we will get some clarity. It is... It says here anyway, Sam has stated we're going to get some clarity. I'm not sure that I actually believe it on what defines truly a movie musical, as well as we will get an answer to the question. At least what our listeners say is the best live action movie musical of the 21st century.
0: Well, maybe he's suggesting whichever of these options wins. That's the definition of a movie musical because most voters have have went that way. You can vote over at filmspotting.net if you haven't yet. And here are the very divisive options we've given you. Best Picture winner, Chicago. The Best Picture winner for about 15 seconds, I think it was, La La Land. (laughs) Best Picture nominee, Moulin Rouge, Bradley Cooper's A Star is Born. That one also a Best Picture nominee, maybe stretching the definition of a movie musical. John Cameron Mitchell's Hedwig and the Angry Inch was another option. And then John Kearney here with with two films in this poll, Once and Sing Street. We also gave you the option of Pitch Perfect in addition to the other category. It looks like, Sam put a note here, votes so far indicate that very few people consider Pitch Perfect or A Star is Born to be musicals. Even fewer believe them. I think them
1: they're both right. To be the best I think they're musicals, both right.
0: Okay, of the 21st century. So um, maybe flawed poll including them. The winner, <laughs> though, it looks like we don't really have a clear idea of who the winner is. It's going to come down to La La Land Once or Moulin Rouge. One of those will take musical supremacy and perhaps define once and for all, no one will ever argue about it again, what mm-hmm. a movie musical looks like. Well, of course, my...
1: Contradiction here is that I am angry at all the people who don't think Pitch Perfect is one of the best musicals of the 21st century. I'm also angry at Sam for classifying Pitch Perfect as a musical because I think he's wrong. So everybody's wrong.
0: How about that? (laughs) You're you're just angry all around. Great, (laughs) Paul.
1: I guess I am. And your theory might be right about Sam and his expectations. I also think it could be that we probably got such insightful, smart erudite answers from our listeners in the comments that we're going to read those next week and they're going to set it straight, Josh. Okay. Can't wait. They usually do no more than us. We have a giveaway. Josh love giving away free stuff here on the show. Five Blu-ray combo packs for the Mauritanian, which is available now to own on digital Blu-ray and DVD. It stars Academy Award winner, Jodie Foster The very good Tahar Rahim. Shailene Woodley is in it. And yes, Academy Award nominee, The Batch, Benedict Cumberbatch. It's a movie based on the New York Times bestseller. And the DVD release is filled with all new exclusive bonus content, including an alternate opening, never before seen deleted scenes, and much more. To enter to win one of these Blu-ray combo packs, it's very easy. You just send an email to feedback at filmspotting.net. Here's the hardest part. You have to write in the subject line The Mauritanian, and we will throw out your entry if you spell it incorrectly. Oh, of course. We're very rigorous. Yeah. The Mauritanian, you just got to get that right in the subject line and in the body. You have to do this. Tell us your favorite performance by the batch. We will pick five winners at random. We'll read your favorite Benedict Cumberbatch performances next week on the show. And those five winners will get the Mauritanian again out now on digital Blu-ray. In DVD, if you were entering, Josh, do you have a clear winner?
0: Oh, for best batch performance, I mean, we probably aren't going to allow his Sherlock, right? That's that's considered TV. So I suppose I might write in that. Didn't watch the whole series, but saw a lot of it. (sighs) Um, I mean, are you going to force me to say like I'm I'm not the hugest batch fan? I'm not a batch man. Sure, it's you know I I think he's good. I think he's a fine actor. Do I go with Doctor Strange? I don't know. Where would you go? Maybe. I
1: yeah, I'm I'm looking back at his filmography at the moment. Of course, he has been in a lot of movies. I think I
0: remember liking him in Warhorse. I've got it. Josh? Okay. You go Warhorse. I totally. I do forgot like him this in Stephen one.
1: Strange. Which one?
0: Uh, I'm going with Smog in The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog. Vocal performance. But uh-huh. honestly, it's no, it's <laughs> It, 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 like, and those movies, not as successful as the Lord of the Rings films, mm-hmm. but I do think they have their on strong qualities. And Smog, the vocal performance, the batch as Smog, is one okay. of the highlights.
1: Doesn't he play someone kind of repugnant, like the semi villain other than War of Atonement? He's on IMDb as Paul Marshall in atonement my beloved I mean, atonement and yeah, i can't see him yeah you're the atonement
0: guy you're going to have to tell me you're going to have to tell me about that one he's you know what else he's good in tinker tailor soldier spy that yeah. was that was a strong one from him i don't know about the best so okay we've done all the work for you <laughs> clearly you and i maybe not the hugest batch fans we'll see what listeners have to say we will indeed quick note about our sister podcast the next picture show right now you can hear part 2 of their window watchers pairing They're looking at the new woman in the window and comparing it to Hitchcock's rear window guest host for this pairing, Roxana Haddadi, who was also recently a team captain for trivia spotting. She was wonderful to have for that and has been, you know, a really great voice on the next picture show. I don't know how she liked, if she felt a little uneasy, being between Tosh and Scott. There was some rear window back and forth there that got mm. a little heated, a little uncomfortable that Roxana had to sit <laughs> in on. But yeah, that's that's been a good pairing so far. Their next pairing, the one they're going to get to coming up here, is looking at the new Australian thriller, The Dry, that stars Eric Bana and... They're going to compare that to Australian director Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock from 1975, a very early Weir film, quite a good one. This is looking ahead to film Spotty Madness, best of the seventies next year, Adam. This is Mm -hmm. on the short list or where is it right now? It's on the short list.
1: Okay. I don't, I don't know that it's going to make the actual final list of 64 films and the play-ins, but it might. And didn't we have a similar fate for Peter Weir's Witness during 80s Madness. So we are really short shrifting Peter Weir, I think.
0: Mm, that could be. Yeah, that does sound familiar. All right, we'll see if it makes the cut. Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. And new episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more information, head over to nextpictureshow.net. One way that you can support film spotting
1: is to join the film spotting family over on Patreon. a month gets you ad-free episodes and monthly bonus episodes. We did recently talk about another 70s madness contender, at least one we had to think about for the final list. It's on the short list. It's Robert Altman's Three Women. For June, we're looking ahead to some more blind spots that are on that list. We might, in our own way, tie it to the release of Pixar's Luca. There's some films including Armor Cord And Walkabout and Spirit of the Beehive, which I do feel like I watched in a European cinema class like 20 years ago, but definitely don't remember enough about it to truly claim that I saw it. So it's one of three contenders. I think if we haven't posted by the time our family members hear this, we will be very soon. We'll get that vote going. Our film spotting family members get to decide what Our bonus show topic will be, and you can look forward to that in June. We also give our family members the opportunity to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events, and it's happening this weekend. This trivia spotting goes to 11, our 11th installment of trivia spotting. As of this recording, all the player tickets remain sold out. A few spectator tickets left. So if you're a family member and you want to participate, or if you're thinking about becoming a family member and you've heard us talk all about the great fun that trivia spotting is, there's a chance still to get in. Just go to patreon.com slash
0: film spotting. So you mentioned it's our 11th trivia spotting. Do you feel, Adam, you've gotten better at this movie trivia game? Because I, I feel like I keep getting worse. Yeah, I'm and that, getting that, worse. That doesn't make sense. Like, I should have picked up some strategies. Uh, I should have... Uh, learned some tricks from our fellow team members, the family members who are usually much better than we are, but it's not happening. I don't know what's wrong.
1: Yeah, I don't either. The last installment of Trivia Spotting the 10th, I had my best finish since the first. All the ones in between were pretty brutal, and I was not the reason why we did very
0: well last time, that is for sure. Yeah, it's all about who we get teamed with. That's been, that's right. that's been my lesson. Again, you can join us at patreon.com slash filmspotting. All right, let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene.
1: Maui. Shapeshifter, demigod of the wind and sea, I am one of- Hero of, of mo- men.
0: Wh- what? It's actually Maui, shapeshifter, demigod of the wind and sea, hero of men. I interrupted from the top, hero of men. Go. Uh, I am
1: sorry, mo- sorry, sorry,
0: sorry. Sorry. And women. Men and women. Both. All. Not a guy-girl thing. Uh, you know, Maui is a hero to all. You're doing great. What? No! I'm here too. Oh, of course, of course. Yes, 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 yes. Now he always has time for his fans. Mm-hmm. That was Dwayne Doyle Johnson and Auli'i Cravalho in 2016's Moana, written by Ron Clements and several others, including composers Mark Mancina and Lin-Manuel Miranda. It was directed by Clements and John Musker.
1: Along with that massacre, we shared our summer movie preview, our top five questions about the summer movie season. So why that scene from Moana? Well, first, we heard from Henrik Hansen in Maidstone, Kent, UK, who says, A delightful rendition of Moana, gentlemen. Josh's Dwayne Johnson impression was so authentic, I could hear him
0: arching one eyebrow. (laughs) Very nice. Peter Huang from Holden, Maine, writes in, Moana finally got one. Thanks to my daughter for having me watch this 47 times. Yeah, I just picked a couple here. Because Peter and Michelle Walters
1: in McHenry, Illinois, really spoke for a lot of our entrance. She says, Moana, as someone who has a toddler that was obsessed with this movie for roughly six months, I was doing the dialogue along with the Josh
0: and Adam. <laughs> Here's Bailey L. from Bill Ricca. That scene is the first interaction between the titular character and Dwayne Johnson's Maui in 2016's Moana. The name change to Doyle is a reference to Johnson's role in Josh's beloved Pain and Gain. Oh, so beloved. The tie-in is the upcoming summer release of F9, also starring Johnson.
1: Yeah, I love how you just said Bill Rucka. Now, in in fairness, we didn't note what state follows bill ricka but you just talked about it like it was i don't know chicago yeah. or toronto do you i mean do you AP have to style you don't you don't have to designate the state no everyone knows where bill Rick is. everyone knows bill ricka is in in massachusetts of course we got this as well from tom morris he writes in from the good the bad and the nerdy movie podcast and he certainly is putting the nerdy in nerdy movie podcast with all of these tie-ins none of which were on our minds when This scene was faked, He says, first, this is the 20th anniversary of The Rock's film debut in The Mummy 2 as the Scorpion King. Oh, yeah. The music in Moana was written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and his musical In the Heights is coming out soon to theaters and HBO Max. Okay, maybe we had that one in mind. This week is the 20th anniversary of the Shrek debut, which was the first winner of the animated Best Picture Oscar. Shrek's success later forced Disney to take risks again in making animated films. Shrek was also Josh Larson's number two film of 2001. And Josh, if yes. I hadn't seen you post that yourself <laughs> back when Scott Tobias, oh. our friend from from the next picture show was the main character on Twitter for about thirty six hours because of his takedown. Yes, his twentieth anniversary takedown. I think in the Guardian of Shrek. Mm-hmm. Man, who knew there was so much passion for it? <laughs> if I hadn't seen you post the proof of it, I would have said this is just Tom having a laugh. No. It sounds like something you yeah. do, but but would
0: you really put it at number two? Oh, uh, I, I you did. That was such fun, Scott. Just you know, doing the Lord's work, defending the cinema from Shrek. <laughs> which, uh, that was apparently, yes. Um, apparently that was necessary. It's true, Adam. It is, it is true. Now in retrospect, Mm, here we go. I will defend myself by saying that the number one film, I think that aged a little better. My number one pick AI artificial intelligence. You know, I I think people have come around on the genius of that Spielberg Kubrick collaboration. Shrek, you know, I mean, I probably, (laughs) I probably wouldn't, in retrospect, put it above the Royal Tenenbaums, my number three, above the man who wasn't uh-huh. there, which I just oh, revisited. Come on, Josh, I just revisited, and is so yeah. good, the Coen Brothers film. Maybe not above Memento. Moulin mm. Rouge has come up in our poll. I had that on my top ten. I still think it's better than Monkey Bone, my number nine film of 2001. Okay. Adam, okay. so you can see what you're dealing with here. All right, we're we're in an alternative Josh universe.
1: Yeah. Yeah, where I like to live. I'm just still laughing because I wish people could have seen kind of just the head move you made when you said, Shrek, maybe not. <laughs> it was, <laughs> there was just something about the the physicality of that, that matched your voice. That was, it was wonderful.
0: Josh. Well, and I'm also going to say, I stand by Shrek. I, I am here. I am joining the hordes to take down Scott Tobias. I but think you it's, say it's, that when was the last time you watched it? Um, Probably the last time I watched it was when our daughter was being born in the hospital because it was the one movie we brought to distract us. We didn't get very far into it for whatever reason. We grabbed Shrek, okay, the screener of Shrek on the way to the hospital. But under duress, it held up. It it well the you know however far we got. Adeline came pretty quickly. She was a good kid. <laughs> Did mm-hmm. you know? Didn't make us wait too long, so we didn't get too far into Shrek. I don't think it was probably, you know, true to say it's the number two film of the year, but I do think it's a good movie. Uh, I think it's very funny. And I think it's taken a ton of heat for decades of really incredibly poor imitators, which is not always fair to hold up against the original. So that's that's my our little Shrek detour for this week's show. Sacred ogre review of (laughs) Shrek.
1: Josh, is it coming or what? Is he a troll? What is he? He's an ogre, right? Ogre. Yes, Adam. Ogre. Okay. So, a Sacred Ogre review. It's coming on Film spotting. And Can't we wait. missed the 20th anniversary, but we'll see if we can fit that in. We're not even done with Tom's connections. He says oh also this week, 20 Tom. years ago, <laughs> The Rock took a break from the WWF to shoot the rundown, and the WWF suffered badly and led to its terrible invasion storyline. Hashtag ECW. Okay, Tom. Finally, Dwayne Johnson is starring in the Disney movie Jungle Cruise with Emily Blunt based on the popular Disney World ride. Blunt is also in a quiet place, too. There you have it. Good work, Tom. Reach in to the kind of brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner, Josh. Our winner, a familiar name, I think. Yes. To the podcast, Aviv Rubenstein from LA. Congratulations, Aviv. At long last, Aviv, who I have broken bread with, and by broken bread, I mean had drinks with in LA at a film spotting meetup, he finally gets the coveted film spotting t shirt. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with that shirt of
0: Eve. That was the greatest acting I have ever seen. I just don't know how you do it, Gary. How do you make yourself so somber and emotional to make everybody cry like that? It's not that hard, really. I just think about the saddest moment in my life.
1: We were just doing our little bit of preparation, which usually means just watching the scene for probably the first time. (laughs) And we just both remain dumbstruck that such a perfect scene exists and I mean perfect scene just in general in thinking about the totality of cinema (laughs) but I also mean for this particular show it's almost as if I want to give Sam credit for thinking that you know maybe he'd had this plan for a year he's like I will find the perfect reason for them to have to do this scene massacre theater make
0: a show work yes around this scene i like to think that he pitched the concept for undina to christian petzold just so mm. that he could eventually get here today okay well this is going to require some real
1: acting by the both of us yes and i think you've got you've got the harder role though in a way you also have the easier role because my guy is kind of trying to really act and <laughs> And you're guys having a great time. All right, let's see what you do with it then. All right, here we go. I'm going to start it off, so you're going to give me the action. And action. Why'd you have to come back to this damn town?
0: Wanted to make a new life for myself. I'm sorry I was born with this perfect bone structure. That my hair looks better done up with gel and mousse than hidden under a stupid hat with a light on it. All I ever wanted to do was make you proud of me, Pop. With what? Your male modeling? Prancing
1: around in your underwear with your wiener hanging out for everyone to see, you're dead to me, boy. You're more dead to me than your dead mother. I just thank the Lord she didn't live to see her son as a mermaid.
0: Mermaid, <laughs> mermaid, <laughs> and scene. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Wow. I, I got a little caught up there. I mean, just a little too yeah. close to home to some of the yeah. conversations oh. me and my dad had.
1: I'm I'm quite certain of that. If you know what film we just massacred, and I'm going to say Josh did not massacre it at all. <laughs> Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net.
0: Deadline is Monday, June 14th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries, and I have a feeling we'll get a lot of them. And we'll announce that winner in a couple of weeks. They're treating us like that. we're animals, dogs, Well, we aren't. We're American citizens. Is it a fact that the Duke Power Company maintains housing for its employees that has no water and no indoor plumbing? Yes, sir. We were attempting to move our people into trailers, upgrade our people into better housing. We'll sit there and sweat when it's snowing.
1: We'll stand right there until that UMWA contract is signed at Brookside. You're coughing there, Josh. Such a perfect transition. Into that clip from Barbara Koppel's Harlan County, USA. Probably not a very respectful one, we should say. No, no, maybe not. Koppel's first film won the 1977 Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. It is next up in our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series. As I mentioned on last week's show, Harlan County was part of one of the very earliest film spotting marathons. Our seventh, which was simply documentaries Sam and I really had... Some homework we needed to do, Josh, back in the early days of this show. That was 2006. It's one of my favorite docs, but we included it in this series because it was a blind spot for you. The movie documents the 1973 Brookside Miner Strike in southeast Kentucky. As you heard there in the clip, life for the miners and their families was extraordinarily difficult with impoverished living conditions and lives cut short by accidents and black lung disease. Of course, meanwhile, profits are soaring for the mine's owners, Duke Power Company, and its subsidiary, Eastover Coal Company. Koppel's camera captures both the violence and the threat of violence between strikers and strike breakers. It also captures the domestic life in the mining community and the intense emotions on display at meetings between miners and the mine's owners. Now, Last week, Josh, I think you said that the only Koppel film you'd seen was her Sharon Jones doc, Miss Sharon Jones, from 2015. Here she is, much earlier in her career, working in a very different mode. I, of course, am curious to hear, I'm dying to hear, how the movie worked for you, but I'm also curious about your reaction to it out of context. And what I mean is, watching the movie not within the scope of really talking about other documentaries, it certainly is unlike any of the other films we've talked about so far as part of this seven from 76 series. But that's prompted by the fact that I watched this movie for the last time back in, I think it was 2013 when I taught a class on documentaries at the University of Chicago's Graham School. And when you watch Harlan County within a certain framework and it's positioned kind of right. At a transition point between some of the early direct cinema pieces and then the more subjective work and the more abstract work even of Errol Morris or Werner Herzog or the personal essays of a filmmaker like Michael Moore, you really can see kind of how groundbreaking Heartland County USA was for its time. Could you appreciate it despite maybe not having that
0: context for it? I think within that context, you can see how it's it's something of a transitional piece because I think it includes elements of both of those forms of documentary film, and maybe we'll get to that when we address the formal uh, aspects of Harlan County. But I also think that you know Miss Sharon Jones was not a bad <laughs> not a bad context on its own for this film. Of course, that was uh, a document of the. F- Soul and funk singer Sharon Jones, who at the time, she has since passed, but at the time the film came out was struggling with cancer and it kind of followed her still making music, still performing while undergoing that challenge. And what I came away with, Adam, from Harlan County is not only did Koppel embed herself with these minors and come away mm-hmm. with what, this landmark in advocacy filmmaking, she made a heck of a music documentary. Yeah. I mean, the, this thing is chock full of not only traditional folk songs, which maybe knowing what I did about the film, I could have expected, you know, these songs that I've heard in different variations, but performed here for people um, just in their natural element that her camera is capturing, but also some like ballads that were newly written to address the situation at hand. We we see songs performed With the names of the men who are involved in these negotiations and these disputes addressed Mm -hmm. in the songs. And so this thing, I mean, do we throw this in the poll as a great, it's not 21st century, but movie musical, (laughs) there's enough music here. and, And maybe one of the most striking moments is when Florence Reese, who wrote the song, which side are you on? Mm -hmm. Way back in 31, this was for a previous labor dispute in Harlan County. She appears here in the 70s at another union meeting to sing it once more. I love how she sets it up. She says, I'm old. says, I can't sing very well. well. But you, you can ask the scabs and the gun thugs which side they're on because they're workers too. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell How the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? If you go to Harlan County,
1: there is no neutral there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on?
0: She has this warbly conviction uh, that, you know, just, grabs the entire room and Koppel's Mm -hmm. camera is right there to get it. It was, it's interesting The not more context for this totally different genre time, everything, Um, but you can see how it fits was John, John Ford's how green was my Valley because that also incorporated the folk music of a 19th century Welsh mining village. And so that's in the back of my head as I'm watching this movie in song after song pours out of it um, in really beautiful, affecting vital ways that, that capture what was going on in this time and place, as well as anything else in the film, really.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's also really indicative of kind of the magic trick this movie is. And what I mean is the way Koppel introduces us to the first singer catches us totally by surprise. At least it did for me. I don't think there was anything to suggest what was really happening on screen until the moment she reveals it. And I'm thinking about the opening of the movie and the fact that it's scored to this performance of a man singing one of these folk songs, one of these protest songs.
0: We're 42 years it a mighty long time
1: And it goes on quite a long time. And for me listening to it, there's nothing about it. I've seen this movie, like I said, at least two other times, maybe three other times. So I shouldn't have been surprised. And yet in the moment, reliving it, it did still catch me off guard and really kind of stunned me. We assume that it's non-diegetic. We assume that it's just music that Barbara Koppel has taken sort of out of time. It, it perfectly fits contextually. It matches the mood of everything we are seeing and the content of it and everything we know we're going to watch unfold. But we think it's something that she has plucked appropriately to fit over the top of the music. And then all of a sudden, we cut to a porch. And it's actually a man.
0: The motors were shifting. I got sand in my heart. Both songs were broke down.
1: It's one of these people living in Harlan County. I think a former miner, he then tells his story, and he pops up one or two other times in the movie performing. Something so simple like that, where it goes from a use of non-diegetic music to diegetic music. It is very striking. And one of the ways it's striking, I think, is just that it keeps everything about this film within this historical context, and it keeps it within a personal context and one that is tied to this location specifically. They're all inextricable from each other. These are people who I think the music reinforces. These are people who are in some way kind of trapped by history. They're thinking back. They're reflecting on those bloody Harlan days of the 30s that you touched on. And they keep reinforcing how they think they're going to prevail this time. And the music is there to kind of propel them forward or to give them a sense that things are going to work out, that there is hope. And yet there is something about the the sheer number of the songs and the heartbreak of those songs that also kind of just constantly reminds you that this has been a struggle for decades and decades and decades and No matter what victories they get, it always feels like they then take a few steps back or that the plight, the struggle is ongoing, even by the end of the film. And I kind of wish now I'd rewatch Harlan County USA before I interviewed Barbara Koppel last year, and I would have asked her about this. But the end of the movie becomes kind of a series of text on screen and examples of different moments from... The struggle that actually followed the primary struggle here, this, this minor strike that went on for over a year getting resolved. But that's kind of the point. It doesn't ever actually get resolved. And I think you could watch it and feel like, oh, it seems like Koppel is just trying to kind of compress into the end of the movie, some key bits of information and the more I watch it, the more I feel like, no, it actually just feels like it's her reinforcing how this is just a cycle of struggle that never ends.
0: Well, and that goes back to how green was my valley, right? So set in the 19th century, across an ocean, same sort of concerns going on. And and so the cycle was seen even there. But yeah, those, those uh, informational subtitles you mentioned near the end, that's an example of how I do think this is a transi- transitional film in terms of documentary cinema so you you're going from you know maybe the direct cinema you talked about to something more impressionistic maybe that we would get in the years that would follow because we have those informational subtitles every once in a while. But I was struck by how this movie mostly moves along like a collage. Yeah, um, it absolutely actually does. Reminded me, Adam. You know, I, I know you were not nearly as high on it as I was, but Leviathan, the you know the the documentary where we're just dropped into the fishing this fishing trawl or really no context at all. It's completely immersive. But think about the beginning of this film that you were talking about, where we do see yeah. the machinery at work in the tunnels. No one's there to tell us what this machine is or what it does. We see men, no one tells us who they are. They don't really speak for themselves directly to the camera. It's a lot of darkness and noise, and it's very impressionistic and and immersive. Now, she does, of course, give us those subtitles here and there, identify people, some context for the way things are going. But yeah, this moves along mostly like a collage. If there's one thing that maybe held me back is that it's when that balancing act doesn't quite work as well. There are a couple of forays into other topics that could have been their own documentaries. There's this fascinating little bit about uh, W. A. Boyle, uh, the the union president, yeah. I believe he is, who who is ends up being convicted in this in the 1974 murder I, of his rival. And I'm just thinking like, oh my gosh, you've you've got a whole film here. And then we you kind do. of like, we move on from that. I think there's also a reference to an explosion at a different mine that we spend maybe 10 minutes on and then we move on from it. So you can see Koppel like kind of trying to work through all this material she's gathered. And I think for the most part, she absolutely ends up with what yeah. she wanted to. As a transitional document, there is a tension it's working through as well. You know, I think that you can see. Um, but ultimately, I did appreciate it mostly as this collage that wasn't over-explaining things, giving us just information, enough information we need to know the context. But she mostly lets the, the voices yes, singing do the information, the music, as we've talked about. And what do those things do, Adam? Rather than just being a report, they make us feel the experience of these people. Music makes us feel. Hearing someone saying makes us feel more than listening to them talk at us. And the other thing she gives, the other formal element, is how her camera is always searching for faces. Mm -hmm. And oh my goodness, the, the faces you get Remarkable. This documentary. I mean, even Boyle's face, you know, this guy who's like the living Grinch almost, the way his eyebrows are arched, he's kind of smug, right? And you see some of the company men who are very smug too, but contrast that with the faces of the miners themselves, which are obviously like darkened from the coal, or their wives, whose faces are you see the lines from just play such a huge role in this film. Oh, yeah, let's talk about that. Go on. Go on. Like, talk to me about the, the, the well, role you, of women in this movie, which was.
1: You watch you watch some of these characters, if you will, including like Sudi, who becomes the president and the way that she isn't as vocal as some of the other characters in the film. But she's someone who when she speaks, you understand why they made her the president, because it is so powerful and it is so not only emotional, but just clearly bears with it the weight of experience. And you do wonder watching it, if another documentarian, perhaps a male filmmaker would have had that same attentive eye, would have given the same attention to the minors
0: as he does to the women who, in a lot of cases, yeah, would he? Would he have bothered to go to those meetings? We see a lot of meetings organized by the women who are organizing their own protests. Yeah. Would a male filmmaker have thought those were worthy of the time?
1: I don't know, but Koppel clearly did. And it turns out They play such a pivotal role in not only keeping the picket lines together and just sort of keeping the strike going, keeping the cause going. But in a lot of ways, they have the biggest impact on the gun thugs and the other scabs, as they call them, who are trying to break the picket line. They actually affect some change, even if it's fairly short-lived and the biggest thing they do i think is show so much conviction and take so much action that the men actually have to start having their own meetings where they say guys we we have to step up we're not doing enough the women in a way are making us look bad just because we're we're the minors and we're not all committed to it the same way our wives are and i just appreciate that as much as the movie focuses on the incredibly dangerous work that these men put in for very little pay and the movie really does right from the beginning right it's all about the toil it's all about the work she sets it up with that great editing to that music it is a montage it's this collage of these moments of just the men doing the work she also equals that out with all of this footage of not only the domestic life what's happening at home with the women and the children but also what the women are doing actually to try to affect some change
0: now we're with you and we'll stick with you all these women we got a whole gang of them it says they'll go with them tomorrow and we're going to be at max in the morning at five o'clock now they're not we're not going to go uh any earlier than that because if we do we're just sitting ducks for them and they'll wait for us and we're not going to tell you where we're going to set up the picket line until in the morning if you want to know where the picket line is going to be set up, you'll be at max in the morning at 5 o'clock. We need every man and woman. There's enough rookside pickets and high-split pickets and women that those scabs wouldn't mean a thing if we get all of them up there. But we're not going to do it laying in bed. I think it's Sudi who says there's one point during one of their meetings where some accusations of of husband stealing get thrown out yeah. there. Is it Sudi who says, I'm not after the other one, but she says, I'm not after a man. I'm after a contract. I'm raising two sons. Maybe it's a different, a different figure in the film, but I just think that's just such a striking declaration of sort of reorienting them in the moment, the people at that meeting, but also us as viewers to what is at stake here, what this is all about. And then another woman to your point about, yeah, who they, they call the gun thugs who come up to intimidate the picket lines. It's actually one of the women who brandishes a piece of her own first and says something like it's lowest something like we it's we got to fight fire with fire. So it is very interesting how and again, this is selected footage that couple got, but the perception we're given is exactly as you say, it's not only the women who are the most committed to this and that line about raising two sons explains why but also the ones who sometimes take the first step and the quote unquote manly step (laughs) in Mm -hmm. many cases, as opposed to the men. So there, you know, maybe there were other scenes or other moments or other meetings where the men were doing something similar. But this is as the film presents it. That is what we see, which is pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, I think the other most striking aspect of Harlan County, USA is and you use the word advocacy. It is the way she does still stay a little bit at a distance but not be shy at all about injecting herself into the proceedings and where there's maybe just a little bit of ambiguity or vagueness in what I'm saying. It's because she's not an instigator in the same way a Michael Moore is or a Ross McElwee is where it's about her. It's about you knowing who Barbara Koppel is and you clearly seeing her on camera and what she is doing or what she is asking or how she's trying to provoke things. But there are definitely times in the film where you hear her with the sound equipment, sort of behind the camera or next to the camera, asking questions. And you see where she's positioned at all times. There are, of course, instances where we are in certain meetings where it's the the bad guys speaking, the heads of the corporation speaking. But for the most part, she's in these living rooms. Yeah. She's on the porches. She's in all of their meetings. She's even, I don't know how I had never really paid attention to this before. She's even in the jail cell.
0: Yeah, when they I did get think arrested, about that.
1: Yeah. Right. Like she's she's so close to them that she is even in there with them, And I I say this carefully because I don't want to suggest that the appearance of objectivity or the appearance of truth is what any documentarian should necessarily strive for. But you are able to kind of watch this film and marvel at how. On one hand, she is inserting herself into it, and she clearly is aligning herself with these minors. But then also you watch some of these scenes, you watch some of those squabbles, you watch those outbursts of of emotion. and you see how how true to themselves they seem to be on screen. And you have to be amazed at how woven into the fabric of that community, Koppel clearly, was she had developed such intimate bonds with them that it's as if she truly is getting an experience she's capturing an experience on film in a lot of these scenes that doesn't feel as if the camera really is affecting what she's observing even though it clearly is sure there, there, there's an illusion that isn't part of her filmmaking per se it's not something she's trying to draw any attention to nevertheless as I watch it you just can't believe how close to the action and how close to these people she seems to be and how trusting they seem to be of her and her camera.
0: Well, that's the embedded aspect, right? She She's so deeply embedded uh, with this community. And and maybe the best metaphor for how she conducts herself as a documentarian is that moment where she brings her camera up to the truck of one of the gun thugs, the leader, I think, and he, he asks, you know, um, who are you? Why are you here? And demand some credentials I think or she offers them she says I you know I have a press pass to be here and then she says back to him who are you cuz he's not in a mining vehicle he's just in a truck and and you know he says his name or something she says well do you have any credentials and he says something like uh, I I left it at home And then really quickly, she's like, yeah, I think I misplaced mine, too. too." Uh And that's the, you know, I don't think she means for that moment to represent this, but it does in a way represent her position as a documentarian is how she wants to be regarded is that she has a right to be there. She's earned her the respect of that community, yet she wants to be a little bit anonymous at the same time. The other thing I want to point out, and I think you referenced this, Adam, because I think it might be the same old timer who's at the very beginning. I'm not sure if he's the same guy Mm -hmm. who sings, but the other thing Koppel knows is that a good story from one of these folks is going to Tell so much more than any sort of facts or statistics, which the movie has some of, some crucial ones. The most helpful, perhaps, is the statistic about the mining company's profits, how they have soared, and then comparing the wage raises for the workers Mm -hmm. who, as you said, are living in poverty. That's very helpful to have. But she also knows what's more powerful is to have an old-timer tell a story from decades back about a foreman who told him to be very careful with the mules in the mine. Because yeah. the animal's life was more valuable to the company than the man's. Yep. And so that, you know, more than any sort of, quote unquote, objective information, hearing that from the, that man's voice, again, a face to the camera, that's all we really need to understand what the miners are up against. Yep. And that's what Koppel seems to understand inherently in this film is where to go to tell this story. She knows exactly where to go and she knows what sounds to capture to do it best.
1: I will add to that here in closing that if you, Josh, appreciated this film as clearly you did and others listening maybe have seen it but not seen some of Koppel's other work, a great companion piece to this one very clearly is her documentary from 1990, which is called American Dream. And it's about the meatpacking workers at Hormel Foods, which is in Austin, Minnesota, and they unionized and went on strike, I think, in the mid-80s. The company had cut their wage from like 10 60 an hour or something to just over $8 and reduced a bunch of their benefits. And so she's returning to very familiar territory. And when you see it, even though the the milieu, the locale is very different than the coal mines of, of Harlan County, Kentucky, of course, a lot of the struggle feels very familiar. But what's really fascinating about it is in that movie, even though... She stays mostly on the side of the unionized workers. There are some scenes where she does something that the Barbara Koppel of Harlan County certainly, I would say, quite by design didn't do. And that's she gets in the car with and goes into the living rooms of the scab workers as well. She tells their story, too. You watch Harlan County, a lot of the shouting at the scabs, a lot of that, obviously, and the violence that is building and building and then finally does erupt around them. But in this film, she says, I'm going to tell their story, too. These are people who are struggling, too, who have bills to pay, who don't see that they have any choice but to go across those lines. I truly here am not picking sides in any kind of union or non-union battle. I'm just saying that as a documentarian, it's really fascinating to me as someone who has paid some attention to Harlan County, USA and Koppel's approach to then watch American Dream. And see her maybe get out of her comfort zone a little bit as a filmmaker, but definitely try to show the other perspective to this, not the other perspective that is the corporate perspective, but another story of struggle.
0: Well, the people crossing the picket line in Harlan County are faceless, which is interesting, you know, in the context of of what I was saying about how interested and focused on faces this documentary is. They Mm -hmm. don't get that same attention here. Harlan County, USA is currently playing on the Criterion channel and on HBO Max. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, send us your feedback. Send it to feedback at filmspotting.net. More on the 7 from 76 best year ever series is at filmspotting.net slash 7 from 76. And we're going to wrap the series up next week with Michael Schultz's Car wash. that is our show if you want to keep the conversation going you can connect with us on facebook and on twitter adam is at film spotting i'm at larson on film in the show archives at filmspotting.net you can find reviews interviews and top fives going back to 2005 that's also where you can vote in the Film Spotting poll. What is the best live action movie musical of the 21st century? To order show t shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter.
1: Out on digital this weekend, Vivo. It's an animated musical with songs and story by Lin Manuel Miranda. And it's coming to Netflix. And Detective Sam Van Halgren, our producer, tried to get. To the bottom of the mystery of Vivo and why nobody is talking about it on Twitter. I'm not sure he got a satisfactory answer, but it's out if you want to see Vivo. Also out wide, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, Spirit Untamed. Now, Sam has noted that his seven-year-old... Would be happy to sit in as a guest critic for this one.
0: I don't know anything about Spirit Untamed, Josh. Do you? I I don't. I think there wasn't there like a DreamWorks spirit a long, long time ago. I don't know if this is some sort of sequel to that animated film, but I do like hearing that there might be a return of film spotting Junior. It's been a long time. That would be nice. We should do that. This would be a different Junior, but still. That's
1: right. That would be fun. (laughs) There's a lot of kids in the <laughs> film spotting family to pick from. Also, out in limited release, you can see the movie that we discussed earlier in the show and both recommend. That's Undina from German filmmaker Christian Petzold. And also, speaking of movies that are fundamentally about the question of the effect the camera has on its subjects, you can watch the new documentary from Theo Anthony. It's called All Light Everywhere. We weren't able to get to it on this show, and we may not get to a full review, but I was a fan of his previous film, Rat Film. And Josh, if I saw your star rating correctly, I think we both liked and recommend All Light Everywhere.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely recommend it. It gets into some big philosophical questions there's a lot of meta elements to it about film and filmmaking so if either of those things sound intriguing to you i would seek out all light everywhere it's pretty good
1: next week here on film spotting we will review in the heights and we will close out our seven from
0: 76 best year ever series with Car Wash. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dussault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar.
1: Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.